Hey everybody, Joseph here, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast, a show that features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres. But first, a little bit about us. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. We have a vibrant and thriving ministry to our neighbors here in Flint and are engaged weekly in worship, faith formation, a dynamic ministry to kids and teenagers, and community building across generations. You can learn more at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 930 to worship with us. We'd love to welcome you and your family to worship. Now, here's this week's sermon. To the word, the gospel of our Lord from the gospel of Luke this morning, chapter 12. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure. It is your father's great delight to give you the kingdom. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Be dressed for action And have your lamps lit. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so they can open the door as soon as he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt He will have them sit and eat, and he, the master, will serve them. If he comes during the middle of the night or near dawn and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But know this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was going to come, he would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is the word of the Lord. We say, thanks be to God. Please be seated. Summertime, so I'm pulling from the official pulpit this morning. Bear with me. My, uh, my doctoral program is all about risk-taking, so <laughs> this is a big risk for Paul and Ryan today, so here we go. 
Recently, I had the pleasure of walking in this sanctuary, of uh, walking around the whole building, the inside, with a gentleman and his friend who had contacted Joseph and I about a, a month ago, uh, asking or letting us know he's going to be in town. He comes from Alaska, and he's going to be here, and he's wondering if we would have time just to, just to meet with him for a moment. He hasn't been here in Flint and in his home church that he grew up since about 1975. And he was curious what it looks like, what is happening here. So he and his friend came, and we met. Joseph was tied up with another meeting, and so I had the opportunity to meet with them. And we took a look at that whole 1986 edition, right? Never seen the chapel before, never seen the office space before, never seen the parish hall before, the kitchen. It's like, whoa, wow. And then he said, "Where's the, I want to go to the sanctuary. I said, of course we're going to the sanctuary. So we came in here, and his friend, who had never been in here, was just in awe, the beauty and the grandeur. And he was taking pictures of the stained glass because he was remembering his childhood growing up here. And he said, this is the one I used to look at, and this is the one that, that we used to turn to on Easter Sunday. And, and, and she was just like, what? Is there anybody still worshiping here? It's Flint, Michigan. So I told them what God was doing in the midst of this city, and the work and the life of this congregation still doing. We had a wonderful time together. It took a lot more time than I expected, but it was a good time spent celebrating God's goodness in their lives, but here in ours as well. And after that meeting with this kind gentleman and his friend, I said, you know, I need to take a, a stroll once again through Glenwood Cemetery, which I do every few years. And I got thinking about the history of First Presbyterian Church and there, right between, right behind us, north of the Mott Mausoleum, right? And a big structure kind of in the central location of Glenwood. Just to the north of it is a fenced-in area with a large obelisk, right, a monument with the name Northrop on it. And some headstones around in the little fenced area, one of only three fenced areas in all of Glenwood Cemetery, Henry H. Northrop, one of the pastors of First Presbyterian Church many years ago. Now, yeah, 18, uh, 1840s, right? 50s. You'll see his name on the plaque in the back. And I got thinking about all the people who'd come through, but primarily I was really started to be curious about what in the world prompted four Christian families, as they're described, to leave their homes and their settlements and the familiar space that they were already in back in 1833 and leave Mount Morris Livingston County, New York, about 30 miles south of Rochester. What prompted them to leave their established homes 
and come to the wilds of the Michigan Territory. What, what is it that causes a person or a family to pack it all up and, and go somewhere else? What is it that made them come here? And I know you could be thinking, oh, 1825, the Erie Canal was done. During this time, there was a big rush to the Michigan territories, Michigan fever. There's all sorts of reasons we could take, but in thinking about it, it's like, all right, they're settled in Mount Morris, New York. They're feeling good, or maybe there's an itch inside. Maybe there's a sense of adventure or wonder what lies beyond. Four Christian families, the Buckinghams, the Robinsons, the Pratts, and the Curtises, decide to, I'm guessing, head up the Genesee River to Rochester, New York, pick up, hitch a ride on the uh, ferry that took them down the Erie Canal to Buffalo, which was another what, uh, 70 miles, 36 miles up from Mount Morris to, to Rochester, 70 miles to Buffalo, 330 miles on a steamboat from Buffalo to Detroit on a five-day cruise, with all the luxuries that I'm sure many of you had when you take your Norwegian cruise lines, no doubt, maybe a few oxen on the boat, I'm guessing, uh, maybe that's not on the Norwegian cruise lines, I don't know. What is it? Packing up their belongings, I suppose. They didn't even have a sewing machine. Maybe they had a spinning wheel, right? No sewing machines at that time in America. Maybe they had a butter churn. They had their glasswares. They had their linens. Maybe they had some furniture. Pack it all up. Pay the fees to get it here. To land in Detroit and then somehow hoof it up another 60 miles to the river of Flint. Not even a county yet. Michigan, not even a state, but a space that was not an easy space to thrive in. No thriving ahead for their life, for sure. They were an advance, the advanced pioneers who were going to pave the way for who was to come after them, which they did. The next wave came in 1835 from that same region in New York, bringing with them their culture, their customs, their faith, their, uh, their, their practices, their understandings of the world, and, and settling here in a little settlement that was started out as a trading post. They began to clear the land. They began to make out, carve out some space, build some buildings. They had a, used to meet in the river house. They were good Presbyterian folk in Mount Morris, New York. Four families from the Presbyterian church there who decided to come out here world made them do that to the wilds of Michigan, which was nothing but dense forests at the time, needed to be cleared. A lot of swamplands 
with mosquitoes and all the bugs and critters that go along with that. Build a log cabin to house yourself from the elements. Suffer through ague, the fever chills that people could get. Deal with and interact with or fear the first peoples who were living here who probably have a very different story to tell of those white settlers coming. Suffering through the bitter winters and the hot, humid summers like August 7th. <laughs> Maybe upstate New York was not so much different weather-wise, but at least they were surrounded with friends and family. These wild Michigan territory was described not fit for habit, human habitation uh, at one time. It was a land of sweat and hard labor. 1833, the midst of the Michigan fever, which was a title given to this westward expansion of people from New England and the Atlantic states coming, moving west, and Michigan was prime territory to move to. It became, the, it became during the 30s, the fastest growing territory in all, in all the country. It moved from 1820 with less than 9,000 people living in Michigan, 1830, increasing to 29,000, and by 1840, 212,000 people living in Michigan. Certainly not all in Flint. Detroit was the large center, of course. Why would you pack up and go to suffer through all you had to do when everything was there? To pave the way for the next movement of settlers, these folks organized their time around working to carve a space, a livable space for them to plant some crops where they might uh, survive. Their weeks took a rest on Sabbath day, Sunday, where they gathered together, traveling two miles by foot to get to a gathering space where they would meet. I suppose sing a couple songs that they carried with them. Maybe they brought a songbook, a hymnal with them. I suppose to read some lines from scripture, which you know they had a Bible with them. But not necessarily to hear a preacher, because there were no preachers established here in this part. There were some circuit riders who come through, thank you Methodists, who came through every now and again, would preach an official sermon. But they did their daily work and their weekly routine of gathering in whatever space they might until they finally organized as an official congregation with enough people there in 1837 to organize a congregation. The first Presbyterian Church of Flint. Same year Michigan became a state. And while it was congregational at the time, Within the next couple of years, it would become officially Presbyterian. I wonder what prompts prompted them to leave the comforts of home, to head out. I'm not sure I'd have 
the guts, the know-how. Could be more space. Mount Morris was a crowded town. Could be to carve out a space of their own. Could be to, because they got caught up in Michigan fever and they wanted to ride the Erie Canal, which had been done. It could be the sense of adventure or curiosity of what lies beyond. It could be their religious fervor, which they came with to share the good news of the gospel with the folks, the traders who were in these parts, who were a uh, motley bunch, whiskey and tobacco. They felt an urge, a compulsion to move out, to see what's beyond. I wonder what it was that prompted the Buckinghams, the Robinsons, the Pratts, the Curtises, to make that move. I wonder what it was that prompted Abraham to make that move thousands of years ago. From his family in Haran, Ur of the Chaldees over to Haran, and then down into a land he had never visited, an unknown territory to him, peopled by folks already living there that he would have to negotiate with. And you say, well, we know why Abraham did it. It was God told him to go. Well, what does that look like? What does that sound like? Have you ever heard God tell you to go? Maybe a prompting in your heart, but a voice? Maybe the four families who came from Mount Morris, New York, had that same prompting. Maybe they had a similar experience to Abram and Sarah, to head west, for Abram to head south. Maybe it was the sense of adventure, the curiosity of what lies beyond, Maybe it's to get away from family, who sometimes can, well, be a little overbearing. Not my family, but maybe some families. And you need a little extra space. Maybe there's a sense of duty to expand and spread out so that others might follow. Maybe, just maybe it is a promise promise. For Abram, we know it was a promise that came from God. However, he heard that, that God would be with him, that God would carry him through, be his shield, his protector, that God would make of him a great nation more than he could ever do by his own hands, a great people, more than he and his wife, Sarah, could ever produce on their own. Maybe those four families from Mount Morris 
had that same promise that they were holding on to as they ventured out into the dangers and the wilds of the unknown, trusting that God would carry them through, that God would be with them, protecting them, holding them fast. Not a promise that you can claim for yourself that goes with you down into the grave. Prosperity, a name, which is soon forgotten. I will tell you, in a couple weeks ago, I took a venture to uh, a relative's grave. I have a couple relatives buried here in Flint from the early, early 1900s, late 1800s. And I went to find one of the graves. I found one and some other family members who were there up in Clio. The other one here in the Flint uh, Cemetery, I went to find and I got the plot and it's, 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 the, the, the stone in the grass is no longer visible. The soil had grown over, everything had just been there and I got thinking, you know, the place knows him no more. His name does not carry on past the grave. What is the promise that you and I, that we as First Presbyterian Church are clinging to? Is it a promise of Tiffany windows, Gothic architecture, of a grand space that fills people with awe as their jaws drop? they come inside? Is it a promise of programs that are going to make us the envy of everybody else around? Or is it a promise that we can't quite yet see? Can't quite yet touch? Can't grab hold of and claim it as what we have made for ourselves? Is it a promise that causes us to act and to dream and to look beyond what we can taste and touch and see? God's promise to Abraham, to Sarah, to all those following is like that. It's not a delayed gratification sort of thing, but it's a promise that goes and carries on beyond the grave. I will be with you. I will protect you. Nothing can separate me, you from my love. It's a promise that never will be annulled or, 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 or canceled out by anything we've done or failed to do. We can't. We don't have the power to cancel out God's promise. We do have the power to ignore it. Maybe even to miss it. But God's promise holds sure. And it's a promise that assures us that our Father's good pleasure, his great delight, is to give us the kingdom. 
Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's great delight to give you the kingdom. So, sell your possessions. Give alms. Make for yourselves purses that do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven. Where no thief comes, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. God's promise is to give us the kingdom. Not in our possessions. That go with us into the grave. That cannot be carried past. But to carry us through. And to hold us fast. And to be present with us in all the travels that we are, this journey we're on in life. Like Abram like these four Christian families stumbling our way through, trying to figure it out, trying to do the best we can, trusting that God is with us. Don't always get it right. We know Abram's story. He didn't always get it right. <laughs> Mistakes are made. We know the stories of First Presbyterian Church. Don't always get it right. Mistakes have certainly been made. This is not a sign of God's promise secured, but rather a housing for us to see that promise here at this table, here at that font, secured not through our work, but through the work of Jesus Christ. The promise of God is made through Christ is secured through Christ. And while it's realized in many different ways, people change, ways and practices change, that promise is secure and sure. It is God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And not through the work of our hands, but through the work of Jesus Christ, his hands, his mouth, his body, his being. God's promise is announced to the world. And through him, that promise is good as gold. Nothing can change God's promise. So today, as you continue the journey this week, through whatever duties you have, today, as we continue as a congregation, to try and figure our way through how we might, make, make, uh, might announce this good news of God's sure promise to the world around us, to the neighbors who live right within our reach, may we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Not on what we have, our possessions. Not on what we claim, our big building of stone glass. For all of this comes crumbling down. But Christ Jesus, who crumbled down, is now risen and alive and at work 
at work calling us into the kingdom. And as we go, may we practice his way with the future ahead of us, acting in ways that announce his kingdom, giving alms, showing love and forgiveness, working for peace and justice, sharing the blessings that we do have with those who do not, so that we may, as Abram and as these four families, demonstrate our trust in the only one who is sure, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God, we thank you for your promise that has carried us low all these years here in this space. Lord, as we move into the future, we ask that you will give us hearts that are shaped by your word, hearts that are shaped by your spirit, hands that are ready for action. Lord, dress us in your righteousness, O Christ, so that we may bear faithful witness to the good news of your love. In your holy name we pray. Amen.